Good afternoon, Salamat Siang, and welcome to the Australia Indonesia Centre and our In Conversation webinar about the disruption to supply chains in a COVID world and what we're learning from it. I acknowledge the traditional owners, the Kulin Nations, of the land on which the centre's office is located and the City of Melbourne from where I'm hosting today's webinar and are also joined in the conversation by panellist Louise McGrath. We pay our respect to Elders past, present and future. Now, as you know, the Centre's mission is to build on the links between Indonesia and Australia. And we do this by bringing together researchers, industry, civil society and governments to discuss some of the important issues that we're all grappling with and see what we can learn from each other. And there's no bigger issue at the moment than the coronavirus pandemic. We have our chat function turned off for the moment, but that doesn't mean we don't want you to join in. We will open that up uh, later into the conversation. I'll let you know when. What I'd like to do first, though, is to introduce you to our fabulous guest panellist. I'm so excited about today's conversation. Professor Nyoan Pojuan is Professor of Supply Chain Engineering at the Institute Technology Sepulu Nopemba and also the President of the International Supply Chain Education Alliance and President of the Indonesian Supply Chain and Logistics Institute and is, of course, an Australia Indonesia Centre Senior Fellow. Welcome to Pak Nyoman. Louise McGrath is General Manager of International Competitiveness at the Australia Industry Group. She has broad experience in international relations and engagement and joined AI Group in 2000. She manages a number of projects, including trade missions and training, and has had extensive experience in providing advice to manufacturing companies and representing Australian industry in several multilateral forums. Just to give you some perspective, the AI Group represents the interests of more than 60,000 businesses in a wide range of sectors, employing directly 1 million people. But it's great to have Louise here. And finally, Pat Sariyo, Director of Supply Chains at Tanny Hub Group, finally but not least at all. More than 15 years of experience in the commercial fresh food industry, including working with some of Indonesia's biggest food retailers. He's been responsible for procurement, QA and supply chains, and he now manages all of the Tanny Hub Group logistics to work directly from farmer to consumer systems. And he's also a fan of Melbourne, so, you know, what's not to love? Okay, so what I thought would be a good way to kick off this uh, conversation is to get a couple of key points from our speakers and just ask them to briefly list what they're dealing with at the moment, the sort of two top of head things. And just to remind you of where we're at, I mean, so much has changed in the last six months. We saw the shutdown of ports, factories and distribution chains in China initially because of the coronavirus that brought immediate and unforeseen impacts to the rest of the world. It meant massive disruption, uh, shutting down air travel because people couldn't travel for those holidays or those business trips anymore, meant less options to transport fresh goods. You had China closing down its ports and its warehouses as it tried to put the spread of the virus under control. We then had social distancing rules come in, which then again affects manufacturing sector and anyone trying to move goods around. Huge demand in other parts of the supply chain as people adjusted their lives and decided they needed more deliveries. There was also an inability to access raw imports or uncertainty about whether that was possible in this new logistical environment. So picking our way through the changes has become a daily challenge as we adjust to a virus uh, which, spread, which spreads very fast but leaves uh, unpredictable results behind it and, of course, causes death, which is so sad. So we're going to find out how our three guests, uh, we're going to find out what they're seeing and how they see industry and how they themselves have been dealing with it. And we'll see where the two countries might um, have some areas of connection. I will ask Professor Nyoman if he could perhaps uh, speak first and just give a couple of key points on what's been happening for him. Thank you, Pat. And thank you, Helen. And thank you for organizing this uh, interesting uh, conversation. Uh, well, um, what I see as an interesting and important changes uh, in the last few months is that 
supply chain is becoming more and more important. And now what we see is that uh, supply chain or supply chain management is no longer an academic word uh, because everybody is now talking about supply chain. So if I watch television, for example, uh, news reporter or politician all are talking about supply chain management. So it becomes a common word for everyone now. So why it is so important? Because um, supply chain is impacting the life of people. So now we recognize that if supply chain is not functioning well, then our own life will be affected. It may be in the form of difficulty in obtaining uh, goods that we need in our daily life. It is also impacting the company where we are working. Uh, and also affect a lot of people who probably lost jobs because uh, supply chain are disrupted. So uh, supply chain is very much to do with our life, on daily life. So that is the first thing that I observe. Secondly, on a macro level, it is very much affecting the economy of a country. So we have seen a lot of reports saying that um, there are a lot of countries uh, having uh, minus growth in their economy. Like for example, the report from uh, Indonesian Statistical Bureau that was released a few weeks ago, saying that Indonesian economy was uh, contracted around minus 5.32, uh, which means a lot for people in Indonesia, because that could mean that uh, the life of people, uh, especially those who are depending their life on, uh, on informal sector, for example, is very much affected meaning their income is also much affected. So that will uh, impact not only individually on their self, but also the call on the system. So the bottom line is that a supply chain is important for, for everything. The supply chain is important for our daily life and supply chain is important when we talk about the economy at the country level. So those are the two points that I pick up uh, that I learned from what is happening in the last few months. Thank you, Helen. Thank you, Professor. And of course, you initiated a survey very early on when this hit, and we'll talk to you about that a bit later and what you've learned from it. I'll now go to Pat Zarillo from Tannyhub Group. Uh, Pat, can you tell us, as a company that has been growing very fast in the fresh food consumer space, the, what are your two key points that you've taken away at the moment? Okay, thank you, Helen. Uh, I think in line with uh, Professor Nyoman's uh, statements that uh, uh, COVID situation has changes uh, towards uh, people's uh, view, people's uh, behavior. What we have seen uh, during the COVID situation is the changes of uh, habits. Uh, you know, people get uh, uncomfortable getting outside uh, besides of the lockdown yeah. uh, it forces people to uh, change the way they shop uh, from offline to online uh, more and more people are uh, you know quote unquote feel forced to change the way they they, they do business so what I what I saw in uh, past couple of months is uh, there were a lot of uh, e-commerce uh, emerging uh, from a, an e-commerce that is only selling vegetable to uh, shifting of a business from previously selling electronics to selling, uh, uh, you know, daily needs of uh, or foods. Number two, what I saw is the uh, it impacts, of course, indeed, the, the way we deliver goods, the way uh, the goods is uh, coming from the farm to our warehouses and from our warehouses to, um, to our consumer. Yet, uh, because of the, some changes also happen in, uh, you know, there is a shifting as well from uh, the farmers who usually serve uh, B2B, Horeca, hotel business, restaurant, catering. Uh, since it, it was a lockdown, the business not running well, then they need to force themselves to switch to, to end user, which is 
quote on quote again another animal because uh, when you are dealing with B 2 B side, uh, packaging is not so important. Uh, you can send goods in a box, uh, a box quantity, but yet once you are moving to B 2 C. Uh, packaging become important, quality is becoming very important. Uh, there will be a lot of complaints, and the expectation of the customer, of course, they want their goods to be ready very soon once they order. I think that's all from me. Very interesting. So many things there that we're going to pick up on. Thank you, Bart. And now to Ms. McGrath, uh, who has been, of course, dealing with those 60,000 members about the immense changes that they're facing in Australia. Thanks, Louise, for your time. If we could get your summary, please. Thanks, Helen, and, th and thanks for including me today. Uh, as um, others have mentioned, supply chains are now suddenly very interesting and, and topic of the month, um, whereas perhaps they were taken for granted. But particularly resilient supply chains is the catch cry in Australia. I think sometimes people consider resilience is really just about ignoring a problem and hoping it will go away and just pushing through. But a resilient supply chain really needs to be more than that. And it needs to have a plan B, C or D. And if companies only have one supplier or customer or access to only one mode of transport, then there will be problems regardless of the global pandemic, regardless of where your suppliers or customers are located. Because you know factories burn down, they suffer um, cyber attacks, owners sell their business. There's all sorts of shocks to, um, to a supply chain that perhaps we haven't really given enough attention to and, and you know, provided enough um, agility into our supply chain. But as, um, you know, as, as the other speakers have said, agility has really been the key. So in Australia, um, there was a call, you know, at the beginning of the crisis, there was a call to a lot of manufacturers to help supply PPE, ventilators and the like. You know, who can do what? So it was sort of a great national cry. And so it's really been pleasing to see that when tested, we can adapt and we, are, we do have quite an agile um, manufacturing base. Uh, a nice example is a mining supply company in regional Victoria um, who, you know, is family company gen uh, for generations manufactured underground mining equipment were able in a short short um, time frame to manufacture ventilators um, for an unforeseen need. Fortunately in Australia we, we didn't need it um, but there was a great shortage around the world in one of those demand shocks. So um, you know that was a, I think a great example of how we have to be agile. And I think all business models are really um, being analysed at the moment. And a lot of our members are looking at online sales, online marketing, whereas in the past they only really concentrated on B2B. But even now B2B um, requires online marketing. You know, this morning we had a, a session on how to market through LinkedIn. You know, these basic skills, a lot of companies have sort of taken for granted, but now understand they really need to improve their online marketing campaign. I think yeah, I think thank, that's great. Thanks, Louise. And, and your ideas about agility, I think that really does, does cut in resilience and agility. And, but, Zaria, that's definitely something that you've had to do at Tanny Hub Group, yeah? Yes, yes. That, that is what we, are, uh, we found out that, uh, uh, hate to say that this type uh, or this pandemic has given us a blessing in disguise since uh, there is a spike in orders and so on. So it, it, it forced us in such a way to, to turn ourselves to uh, pay attention more on uh, speed, the quality of the delivery and so on. Did you uh, have to change much the way that you delivered the fresh food? I'm just thinking about, perhaps you can explain how the food is moved in your supply chain. Um, how many modes of transport you depend on and, and the changes that you made? So, uh, I, uh, in Tanihab Group, uh, we are managing uh, from last mile to, uh, first mile to last mile. In the last mile uh, side, of course, uh, there is, since, again, since the, the our customer is... Uh, getting more and more aware on social distancing and then 
they they tend to feel an insecure uh, meeting with outer people then uh, at the moment we at that moment we try to launch uh, contactless uh, services in our uh, application so if the customer or the client uh, feel not comfortable meeting our career then we can uh, we we give them chance to tick a menu in our application say that this is contactless i don't want to meet the courier and then also uh, we do coordination with our courier to do uh, proper you know proper more proper handling like uh, wearing mask wearing gloves while de- uh, while delivering the goods yet uh, in fact be- far before the covid happened we have already started uh, you know food safety uh, certification initiative for uh, ISO 22000 and halal assurance certification uh, HAS uh, 23000 which also have uh, give us an advantage that our team has already got uh, you know experience uh, in wearing masks while doing their work and uh, doing uh, you know wearing gloves and uh, pay attention to all the safety aspects in in our warehouses actually so when this happen the the team will say uh, the team only say that oh yeah yeah we we did it but uh, luckily we did it uh, far before this yeah so that there is not much uh, uh, you know adjustment that need to be made from the last mile side what we saw is uh, uh, actually Helen, in our previous conversation, we uh, I mentioned right that in Indonesia, COVID happens only in the first and second tier of the city. In villages, in uh, uh, city where the farmer grown their product, actually it doesn't much impact yet. There is an uh, a, a challenge at that time that uh, the transportation stopped. So the car that usually they 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 send. Uh, the goods to the market or to us, uh, they 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 feel scared. You know, what if I deliver to your warehouse and then I'm not allowed to go back to to our city? So uh, it also uh, cause problem. And uh, since Indonesia also uh, the the major part around more than 75% is smallholder farmers that usually also make use of the bus transportation to deliver their goods also having problems because the frequency of the bus has become less and less and some for some uh, destination is even stopped so uh, that also impact uh, in such a way that the the supply in in uh, in our side and to cost uh, consumer also uh, influence mm-hmm. yeah really interesting thank you and Uh, I want to pick up on some of the things that you've talked about, but I'm curious to know from Professor Nyoman, with the survey that you've been doing with business in Indonesia and the conversations you've had with them, are you finding that those who have been able to adjust and be agile are surviving, but there are others who are, who are having trouble keeping their business going? Yes, uh, Helen. So I think there are different conditions Uh, that are experienced by different industries. But generally, if we look at the aggregate terms, most of the manufacturing companies in Indonesia are significantly affected by the COVID-19. Even the survey that I conducted was actually a little bit too early because that was uh, around April, where the coronavirus was just uh, where started in Indonesia at the time, we already shared the responses from our respondents saying that um, most of them are actually affected. So more specifically, 90% of our respondents who are actually manufacturing companies in Indonesia consider that the impact was at least moderate. Yeah, 90% consider that uh, the impact was uh, at, least, at least moderate. Some of them, of course, consider the impact was extreme or more than just moderate. 
So um, that was the aggregate terms. If we look at more specifically how different industries are actually affected, of course, we may have different, um, different results. For example, if you look at the uh, uh, building materials industry, for example, like cement, uh, it is quite obvious that this industry was affected. But, but the recent, recent data was also released by the Statistical Bureau of Indonesia, who collected uh, hard data about the growth of each industry sector, saying that uh, if you look at uh, cement industry, I think the construction was actually around, well, around uh, 18% if we look at a quarter on quarter and around maybe 9% if we look at a year on year. So if we compare, for example, quarter two in 2020 compared to quarter two in 2019, there is around a nine something percent decrease in the production of cement. Well, of course, if we talk about the decrease in cement, it will also be impacting other building industries, uh, building materials industries, because cement is not a standalone material. So if everyone is uh, building a house, for example, they do not just need cement. Uh, they also need other materials. So if there is an indication that cement is actually uh, slowing down, that would also mean that other building materials are also experiencing the same. And more, I think, more severe uh, uh, con contraction was experienced by um, those industries in the uh, transportation equipment. So the statistics show that there is around 87% decrease in production of cars and around 89% decrease in the sales of cars. So that, that's a very, very big uh, percentage. If, you if we are looking at, um, if, if you are looking at of the data that was released by the Statistical Bureau of Indonesia. So obviously um, we experience a massive um, contraction, uh, even though as I said earlier, maybe the experience from one industry and the other is not exactly the same. Uh, if you look at in the food industry, probably it's not that much. It's not really the decrease, but probably the shifting uh, of demand from one type of food to the other type of food. Because you know, in Indonesia, for example, uh, our culture is uh, very much related to social event. And a lot of those social events are actually uh, not going on right now. So, for example, if we are talking about water, uh, mineral water, we consume mineral water in different types of package. Uh, normally, the glass size of mineral water is used for social event. And the uh, gallon size of mineral water is consumed when we are at home. So now, as the social event is decreasing very significantly and people tend to stay, to stay at home, uh, there is an increase in the demand of the gallon size of uh, mineral water and a significant decrease in the um, other package like uh, the glass package of mineral water. So these kind of changes are happening. So there are industries that experience a significant decrease in the demand. There is also uh, industries that experience shifting in the types of demand. Mm -hmm. And also there are some industries that experience uh, a slight increase in demand. Okay. So all, all, all kinds. Yeah. Sorry yeah. about that. Thank you. Um, that's a good point. Yes, it depends on the industry. And I guess it maybe gets back to something that Louise said about how they're managing plan B and C. Um, I've, we've got a question that come, has come in from a participant. And we'll just put that up on screen now for you. I'm keen to get a response from Sariu and Louise on this. It's from Billy Nure Owen from Adaro Energy. As a company, how do you manage your inventory level to meet demand shock from customers in the pandemic? So, but Sariu, I think you, you have had uh, 
quite full-on experience with this, to say the least, and I suspect Louise has got uh, a good overview as well. Just to um, provide some context to Tannehill Group has experienced a 300% increase in demand in this period. So how on earth did you manage that? How did you get your inventory levels to meet that? Well, uh, this is a combination of uh, data analytics and experience. So uh, during the, uh, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic, pandemic that has been uh, announced by the government, we started to see spikes, small spikes. Yet uh, from there, we start to, to analyze uh, from day to day, from day to day. Uh, and uh, to manage inventory in uh, ultra fresh is uh, again, uh, a very interesting story because uh, you need to combine availability, uh, shelf life and quality, right? So, uh, we manage uh, the stock or we, we analyze the stock uh, in the first uh, first week is uh, day by day but during the after that it, we manage it uh, we, we analyze it three times a day uh, there is a, a you know just like a unimaginable uh, spike of the customer and uh, it even also made our uh, other competitor has to stop the operation for around two weeks because of the spike. But luckily, it did not happen to us. Uh, so we combine the data analytics and then uh, we watch also the media on what, what is happening. We talk, uh, we discuss uh, intensely with our uh, vendors, farmers, uh, regarding what is what is ready, what is not ready. Uh, for the items that is stockable, we increase the purchase up to 500% just to secure the, the, you know, the availability. For the perishable, of course, or for ultra fresh, for, of course, we cannot stock more than two to three days. Uh, so we need to manage from a uh, couple of uh, uh, factors and of course again uh, we we did take risk of course uh, to prepare what is uh, in in demand like for did, example yeah like oh, herbs sorry, did, yeah. right did you have to tell some customers that you couldn't supply you just couldn't get the product what is available in our uh, application we will deliver so no matter what we will get for the customer so it is part of our service as well as the the guarantee that the product will deliver or will be delivered in a very good condition for quality mm. so you so what is not available yeah so what is yeah. not available uh, the customer won't see so it will be gone from the shelf. Yet oh, what is on shelf, then we will provide. And that's where your data comes into it. And just a quick sidebar to that, because we have a, a Q&A chat is open and we have a, a question from someone, uh, sorry, Cindy Callender, not just someone, wondering how you move so quickly to contactless delivery. Uh, you know, we are very lucky that we are working with a very, very good uh, third-party logistics that also understand uh, the situation. Yeah? And the, all the third-party logistics is also uh, from startups. So uh, we, have, we have been very good uh, communication and coordination with them. And uh, we explain to, the, to, the, to our partners that this is a must. Uh, is this is must do? We cannot uh, negotiate on this. Mm. Okay, good. Thank you, Louise McGrath. How have Australian companies adjusted to? You know, they're so used to just in time inventory and delivery, and now you know a, an island surrounded by sea at the end of the world, so dependent on those connections. How did they manage their inventory when things started to shut down? 
So um, we've been surveying our members every month. So we've been tracking how they've been responding since March to, to this crisis. And prior to that, um, you're right, we were more concerned around supplies and, and just in time. But, you know, for all the, um, you know, contactless, for, for e-commerce and the like, all that innovation, we can't change one fundamental truth, which is our geography. And Australia is at the end of any line. We're not in the middle, we're at the end. And there aren't actually many companies in Australia who rely on just-in-time for, for um, inputs because we've always had um, these risks and, and shocks. So our first concern was when China shut down at the beginning of the crisis um, and we were calling all our members you know, to find out how they were responding. And most of them had said, well, actually we have three months supply because we knew Lunar New Year was coming on um, and, you know, we always have a bit, of, um, a bit of fat in our infantry, much to the complaint of a lot of their accountants, it has to be said, because infantry control, you know, is, is a cost. But what was interesting is that some of our um, manufacturers were able to supply to their customers in Europe ahead of their competitive European competitors because they did have that high levels of infantry. Um, so that's, that's one um, blessing. But I think um, the, the main point that I, I would like to take up is the, how important communication is. So when um, members, you know, from March, um, April, May, June, you know, were asked, how are you responding to this shock to your business? Um, over 20% said increased communication, um, whereas only very single digits were changing shifts or processes and the like. And now, um, as we get to June, communication is already locked in, so it's it's smaller numbers citing that as, as a strategy, and changing shifts or changing business processes is around 30%. So companies aren't just adapting to the crisis, they're adapting their response as the crisis matures. Hmm. Professor Newman, I, I'll go to you because uh, I think there's two things you can pick up on there in regards to the broader situation. The use of digitization and data and how companies are perhaps having to shift to use those tools more. And uh, as Louisa said, communication, have they been able to keep communicating during this time and, and overcoming those, those hurdles that have arisen? Well, I uh, I believe that uh, digitalization is, is a must for almost every company nowadays. And with uh, COVID-19, I think uh, the force is even more severe. So we need to transform to uh, digital uh, very quickly. And that is not only happening in, in, in manufacturing sector, for example, but, but everywhere including, for example, in universities and in other sectors. If you look at uh, on the supply chain side, I think we have seen a lot of improvement in terms of digitalization on uh, the customer services, on the order fulfillment from, from the customer. Um, especially if we are living in the city, like, like myself, for example, we are now uh, stopping to go to uh, to supermarket uh, physically, so we don't go to the store physically, but we rely on uh, shipment from from the store or from 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 companies like uh, Tani Hub that Fa Sario is mentioning. So I think a lot of companies are now developing uh, good capabilities in terms of digitalization, data analytics, etc., like Tani Hub is doing. So that will enable them to serve the customer in a better way, improving the customer service level while maintaining the inventory at an acceptable level as well. So I think we have seen a lot of transformation like this right now. And to me, I think if I'm uh, sitting at the, or standing at the, the point of a customer now, I think I'm, I'm uh, more or less satisfied with what is uh, now happening. But I, I think there will be a lot more that will come in the future. I think the capabilities will improve as the demand is there. Uh, and, and I'm quite optimistic about this. Louise McGraw, do you think that 
digitization will increase even in a country like Australia, which is reasonably advanced in its technology. And then I want to go to Surio and, and talk about some of the, we're getting a question around how the two countries might actually work together and learn from each other, which I'll bring to all of you. But just a quick insight from you, Louise, about Australia and digitization. Yes, um, particularly for um, B2B products. So B2C, you know, wine, food, skincare, they've been, they've um, adopted on um, e-commerce, particularly for international sales, um, quite successfully and, and very early adopters. But uh, as I said earlier, the calls that we're getting from members asking how to set up online shops, how to do online marketing, um, from companies who have never looked at it, never considered it before, you know, just completely changing their sales force and their business development strategies and, and the way they communicate with their, their customers um, and, and the sort of the middle customers. It, it's quite extraordinary. Even, um, for example, which I, I mean, as a consumer, I, I still don't really understand, but a lot of winemakers, wine sellers are doing online wine tasting. I don't know why you get to watch someone else enjoy wine, how that increases sales, but a lot of winemakers have been and wineries have been saying it's been very successful. They, they live stream into North America and they work with their local distributor, talk through um, the different wines and what it means and, and people can see the, the background and, you know, it generates sales. So it's, it's interesting the way everyone's trying to adapt very quickly. Yeah. Interesting that you say the slow take up in Australia because Indonesia, it's, you know, everything's moving online so fast. And Surya, this is obviously where your group is right in the middle of that change. How, um, how important are tools like traceability? You talked about food safety has become a higher priority, for instance. What are you using to give people that assurance about your product? Uh, COVID has changed... Uh uh the the customer's behavior and view uh, from price to quality or value for money so previously uh, customer is talk a lot about price 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 cheaper 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 yet uh, this covid has changed the way people uh, view about the food they have they start talking about is it safe uh, is this uh, vegetable planted by healthy farmer? Uh, from which farm is it? Is it, uh, is it? Which location it come from? As well as uh, when we are talking about that, again, what we are doing is we are answering uh, actually the problem far before COVID happened. So that is why we are preparing our uh, uh, HACCP or food safety uh, certification and halal assurance certification to ensure that all of the product that is processed by our farmers and partners and in our uh, warehouses and uh, supply chain uh, during the way is safe and good for uh, our customer. Mm. By, by, by doing a lot of uh, campaign in our social media and so on. Yeah. I think that consumer shift is really interesting and then having the tools in place uh, and the research behind those tools as well is yeah. just as important, I imagine. Um, I, for, the, for the industry professor, look at this, and I'll pop up another slide actually at this point because I think this does tap into the question, Australia is learning new things, Indonesia is learning new things, and we have a question from Mohamed Arifgal, Apologies for not saying that correctly. How can Indonesia become a key player in connecting Australia with Asia in the global supply chain? Um, this is a question that's rolling around. I think coronavirus has raised some new thoughts about that. And Louise, I might come to you about that too. Mm. Yeah, but perhaps, Professor, if you could um, give us some ideas first. I'm thinking about the use of digitization and data. Well, I think as geographically Indonesia is, is close to Australia, and if we look at the uh, trade data, I think we are trading quite a lot between Indonesia and Australia. I think now digitalization will also become an, a power that comes between two countries. So we will, uh, we will be able to um, 
share or use the common data or common platform for trading between Australia and Indonesia. And I'm sure that the opportunity, uh, if we are looking from the Australia side, is not only for Indonesia, because Indonesia is, is just one part of uh, Asia. There are a lot more, I think, if we are looking at the market size in Asia. The, even though if we are talking about Southeast, Southeast Asia, the number of population in Southeast Asia is over maybe close to 700 million now. In, in, in Indonesia alone, it's around, um, yeah, yeah, it's a big percentage in Indonesia. But I think if we look at the total uh, number of population in Southeast Asia, that is a really big market for Australia. And I think, uh, I don't know how it will become, I mean, uh, in what form it will be, but I'm sure uh, it, the connection between Indonesia and Australia will become a bridge between connecting Australia and uh, Indonesia beyond, so Asia especially. Louise, uh, your members learning new things and around fresh food in particular that Indonesia is often seen as a market for that. Is there thinking around that, for instance? Yes, I, mean, I think that we're looking for all markets. It's unfortunate that, um, you know, with the flights, you know, while, while we're very fortunate that the government is working very hard to support flights for high value um, agricultural exports, none of those flights are currently going to Indonesia. But, um, you know, just you have to say Australia, although we are one island right now, we, we're broken into many islands as we have internal state border barriers. And as Victorian, I can um, travel um, nowhere. I can go five kilometres right now under our COVID lockdown laws, but the state border problems are causing lots of problems for Australia. But conversely, that might give companies more confidence in looking at Indonesia. Indonesia has always seemed quite complex with all its islands and the fact that they're so successfully navigating that during this crisis and managing to have a national um, logistics chain, even if it is diminished, I think is, is a really positive story for, for Australian companies. And I think that the ISEBA, the Indonesia-Australia Comprehensive Economic Partnership, our FTA, with its um, really good rules on trade facilitation, that it really advances the relationship, the really good rules on digitalization and, and data localization that I think are the first that Indonesia has agreed to with any other trading partner, really puts Australia uh, in a really good place to work collaboratively with Indonesia, as you say, to get into the rest of ASEAN. Mm. I imagine too um, a lot is to be learned from a company like Tanny Hub Group you know if you're looking to supply fresh food they're saying look that that's the side that we've got covered but what we're interested in is better packaging smarter systems um, how do we perhaps even help our farmers improve their production mm. uh, is that the kind of thing that you think Australians may now look to as alternative ways to work uh, with a country like Indonesia? I think so. I think Australian companies will have to think differently about how they engage with the world because it is shown that we just can't rely on, on you know, picking fruit and vegetables, putting them on a plane and sending them out to the world. However, what's valued is not actually those vegetables. It's all those processes that, you know, HACCP, which has been in Australia for, for many years, um, all our quality control, our traceability, our packaging, the innovative way that we constantly develop products. Um, whether it's, you know, if you think of Tim Tam biscuits, you know, and all the different flavors and then Tim Tam balls and, and, and the like, we, we're not just thinking of one product and, and set and forget. We're constantly looking at new and interesting ways to get the product to the consumer. And I think if Australian companies start to think that is their expertise rather than grapes or apples or whatever, then that really um, provides a lot of opportunities for these sorts of partnerships. Mm. We haven't looked at the localization of supply as well. And we've got a few questions in the chat around how, how do I even work out my inventory? How do I even work out what I can get in to my business over the next, say, three to six months? And it made me think, Professor Newman, of the conversation we were having around the localized supply and how that may change. You know, the Indonesia in particular has been, uh, look, well, Australia as well. How do we 
source product more locally. And I noticed too that one of your um, your ministries, I've forgotten which one, sorry, was saying recently we're actually going to curb some imports. We don't know what they are yet. But that will then also affect potentially the manufacturing industry in Indonesia. So when we look at that local supply, are there trends there that you can see happening that will shift the way the supply chains work? Yeah, uh, that, that is a very important point, actually. Uh, if you look at the uh, figure now, I think we import really a lot of materials from other countries, especially from China. Actually, China contributes to around 30% of our import. Um, so initially when China, when the coronavirus was happening in China, we already see uh, a lot of effect on the manufacturing companies because they didn't get the materials on time, but there were disruption in the supply of materials. So uh, I think uh, companies were also thinking about uh, localizing the supply side, so develop the local suppliers. Uh, that was also the result of uh, the survey that I conducted uh, a few months ago that many industries said that uh, it is important to actually find alternative local suppliers to import. And also, as you mentioned, I think there is also a statement from um, Ministry of Industry uh, to support the uh, local development of, of suppliers. But uh, I still have no idea how it will work in reality because it is not a simple thing to do. So there are a lot of things to, to, to develop, I think, to, to obtain the quantity and quality that is acceptable for any industry. I think it requires a lot of time of development. So I think there is a, a big intention uh, for that. But it seems to me that uh, it is not happening uh, in the near future. It is a long-term strategy and it requires a lot of political support for, for localizing uh, the supplies of materials. Okay, I, as you were talking then, I just realized we have another question that if we're talking about uh, that longer term, how are we sourcing materials, we do have a question from Didayat Hidayat from Triksaki Institute of Transportation and Logistics. I'll just um, see if we can get that up for you. Yes, so let's say the pandemic is going to last, wow, three years. Maybe not that long, but even if it's for another 12 months, how can supply chain systems adapt? We have sort of covered that, but I guess the question is, can they adapt? Um, and, and do they need to adapt for that long-term change? Um, perhaps, perhaps, Siri, I'll go to you first, then Louise and Professor. Okay. Uh, in our view, uh, the industry is changing. The, the, the 3PL uh, companies that uh, we see now is totally different 3PL company that we saw uh, six months ago or, or last year. Yeah. By uh, that you mean the, the third-party logistics, the, the inter-logistics, just so that yeah, anyone who... Inter logistics yeah. and uh, also uh, inter-island logistics also uh, will change. The more options come, uh, as, as I mentioned before, a lot of uh, new companies that is uh, emerging uh, to answer this uh, problem, it means that more options, more competitiveness, more access, it will drive to, uh, uh, you know, a lower price uh, of uh, logistic costs. Uh, com competitiveness will increase their services. Now, uh, since we are uh, in, in our field, we are talking about uh, a lot of food uh, uh, transporting, uh, cold chain become also uh, a need to, to answer how to deliver uh, fresh fish or frozen fish uh, in a good condition to our customer and so on. Uh, I think uh, the, the industry is changing and uh, even though it, it the pandemic, let's say the pandemic next, next year it will stop, then uh, the habit will be formed and there will become another, uh, become a new trend that uh, like Professor Newman said that uh, the customer will will adapt 
and feel comfortable uh, shopping at home and so on uh, and leaving a big part of uh, offline shopping and switch to online shopping i think is it's is good uh, for the industry it is good for uh, our customer itself yeah. louise mcgrath someone's trying to deal with a long timeline here but uh, well, i think i mean I'm a firm believer that innovation will, will always save us and that's where we have to look first. And I think we need to look at, you know, for example, the fresh fish example, we need to look at new ways of packaging and thinking about, you know, is um, just caught fish flying around the world really sustainable? And, and is there another way to do it or is there a different product? Um, as I said, you know, Australia has lost something like 90% of its air freight you know, almost overnight. And a nice story, I mean, there's lots of tragic stories, but a nice story is an exporter of goat milk, fresh goat milk, who adapted to making um, dried milk powder, goat milk powder, and exporting that in, you know, quite a relatively short amount of time. So that's obviously a very different product, but it also opens up to different, um, different customers. Fresh goat's milk is direct to the consumer, whereas dried goat's milk can be used as a food ingredient and, you know, higher value add. So it's, it broadens the customer base. So I think companies are going to, as I said, not just think about, you know, picking things and, and sending them overseas, but thinking about the product and how they can work better with partners. Mm. And, and perhaps from what you say, forcing them to think about other markets and differently and work together, not just sell something. It doesn't, That's it's right. more than a transaction. Yes, I think it's that strategic partnerships that we've really got to, to work on. And the data supports that those companies who have investments overseas um, earn more money than those who don't. So it's, if that's what their aim is for their, their stakeholders and shareholders, then they should be working with their global partners. Mm. Professor Yeoman, uh, it was mentioned the cold chain uh, twice now, and, and that really is one of the challenges for Indonesia at the moment. It's cold chain um, system isn't that well developed. There's uh, a lot of not air conditioned vehicles on rough roads still, but can you see the coronavirus actually forcing those changes faster? And as Pazurio says, you know, consumers are, are starting to demand a better product as well. And how fast do you think those changes will develop? Is it going to take time or can you see a bit of a push going on in the next six months? Right. Uh, yes, if we, if we talk about cold chain, I think, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, I think especially we would have problems in in the source side, especially if we talk about uh, catching fish. Uh, there will be a problem on how to get sufficient electricity, especially if we are talking about eastern part of Indonesia where, um, where uh, this kind of uh, uh, supply is not really good, it's not really enough. So infrastructure is, is important to support the cold chain in Indonesia. Uh, if we are talking about Java, I think it is not really a big problem. But, but, uh, but unfortunately, the sources of commodities that require cold chain infrastructure is not only here in Java, but it is also coming from many parts of Indonesia. So, if we are talking about fish and fruit, for example, it is spread over uh, different islands in Indonesia. And uh, the problem is, as I mentioned, the electricity is not, is not available in the same level uh, in all parts of Indonesia. So this requires not only improvement and development on the, uh, on the business side, but also development of the infrastructure that is the responsibility of, of the government. Well, of course, in the short term, I think uh, there is a significant improvement on that, especially uh, uh, what the companies or the business can do. They, they normally will, will adapt uh, very quickly to, to the demand or to the changes, but the limit is on the availability of the infrastructure. Mm. And yes, that's a whole other conversation really, isn't it? 
Um, I'm afraid we're going to have to start wrapping it up. We have many more questions and I'm sorry we haven't got to them, but I hope we've covered a bit of what you've raised or uh, it has at least been of some benefit to you. I want to end by asking the panellists a question and they can answer from either end, from the Australian perspective or the Indonesian perspective. It's totally up to them. We're wondering what can Australia learn from Indonesia about what's happening at the moment with supply chain and logistics or what can Indonesia learn from Australia? I guess we're looking for some areas where you know, we can actually have those strategic partnerships as Louise was talking about. Um, so I will go to Patsarillo, then Louise, and end with Professor Newman. What can the two countries learn from each other, Patsarillo? And we're very happy to learn from Indonesia, by the way. This uh, COVID, uh, I think uh, we are not talking only about the logistics. Uh, what happened to our uh, production and the movement of goods or products from one place to another, from farmer to table, one important thing that we need to learn, yeah, because I, I, I'm lucky I had a chance to visit a couple of times to see how the industry of Australia and uh, in uh, Tasmania as well as in New Zealand and in China build their uh, uh, agriculture. I'm talking about uh, especially agriculture here is the post-harvest technology. So before we are transporting the goods, we are talking about from point A to point B and so on. I think one important part is how to improve our post-harvest technology to prepare the goods so that it can travel far. I think this is also the answer why uh, Indonesian fruit is not quite well known outside because uh, we cannot uh, deliver the fruits in a good condition. One example also the, the, the cost of transportation itself uh, in Indonesia, we we know that uh, certain fruits in uh, east of Indonesia, like Panyoman said, is good. Like for example, uh, Manado Manado uh, avocado. You know what what is so funny is or maybe tragic, yeah, not not to say funny. The price of transportation of sending one kg of avocado from uh, Manado to Jakarta itself is almost uh, double the price of the the goods itself. So I think uh, what Pat Newman said is uh, true. Uh, our infrastructure need to be improved. And uh, you know, since we are working inter-islands, we are not only working on land transportation. The combination of land and a good uh, uh, other transportation is also uh, important. So. Uh, if we are talking about bigger ecosystem, it is starting from the production itself, uh, the post-harvest technology. The, Interesting. Good answer. The value chain yeah. itself, yeah. Yeah, thank you very much. Louise McGrath from the Australian, uh, Australian Industry Group. Apologies. Thanks, Lynn. I, um, I agree. I think it's um, some of our traceability technology, I think, will be really important for the Indonesian consumer going forward, and I think that'll be a great opportunity for collaboration. But also multimodal transport. I think we've become quite lazy on, um, you know, just putting things on trucks or just putting things on planes. And I think if we had some of the Indonesian flexibility in using all the modes of transport at our disposal, I think that would have held us in better stead um, than perhaps we are in at the moment. And just because of this might be the last time I speak, I think we can't talk about supply chain without also acknowledging all the work of the people in the supply chain, the, the truck drivers and the, the sea crew and the air crew and how their lives have changed. You know, we've got truck drivers who every week have to have a COVID test so that they're allowed to cross mm. state borders. We've got sea crew who aren't allowed on shore, air crew aren't allowed to leave the airport. There's a lot of sacrifices that we all benefit from. So I just want to acknowledge uh, all those people. That's, that's a really good acknowledgement. Thank you for bringing that up. And finally, Professor Newman, uh, what can the two countries learn from each other? Well, I think uh, Indonesia is still at the early stage of uh, standardization. We, we need standard across the supply chain, standard in terms of packaging, the quality of the product, etc. That is still a big problem actually in Indonesia. And we would like to learn a lot uh, from Australia in this sense. So 
we are not talking just about uh, Taniha, which is already very much advanced, but there are a lot of uh, supply chain players in Indonesia that is not up to this uh, level. So we, we need a lot actually to do in the future to improve the standardization, not only at the market side, but also at the supply side. Fantastic, that's great. Thank you. And again, sorry, we didn't get to all of your questions. Uh, we will be posting this webinar online though, so if you missed anything or you'd like to check anything, we'll send that link out very soon. I would like to thank Professor Nyoman Pujawan, the President of the Indonesian Supply Chain and Logistics Institute and a Senior Fellow of the AIC amongst many roles that he holds. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Pat. I know how busy you are yeah. and, and you have many students who adore you who have joined us today, so that's great too. Okay. Thank you. Louise McGrath, General Manager for the International Competitiveness Unit at the Australian Industry Group. Thanks so much, Louise. I know that you get slammed every day, so we do appreciate your time. And uh, Pat Surio, Director of Supply Chain at Tanny Hub Group. Pat, so, so very lovely to meet you. And we can only hope that we can all travel again soon and, and have that copy, yeah? That would be lovely. Another very busy person who has kindly given his time. So thank you very much to our guests. Now, just a quick reminder that we do have another webinar coming up in about two weeks' time in the first week of September. And we're calling it Digital Economy Post-COVID, What Next? Which really sort of encapsulates, I think, what we're all thinking. Uh, there's so much going on. But we are going to hear from our own industry fellow, Professor Caroline Chan, who actually is an expert in supply chains, but she's about to start an exciting e-commerce project between Australia and Indonesia. And we also have Alex Chandra from the Indonesian e-commerce platform Bukalapak. Uh, that will be on Wednesday, the 2nd of September. So two great speakers and we're working on a third. We'll let you know when, uh, when that's confirmed. We hope to see you again soon and thank you again so much for your time.